You're listening to the Heart of Weird podcast, where we discuss heathenry, lore and legend, and the modern take on an ancient practice. Hello, and welcome to the Hearth of Weird podcast. I'm your host, Kira. And today with us, we have a special guest, Khan. Hello. <laughs> Khan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so my name's Khan. I'm, uh, I'm a Norse pagan. You can call me that, Norse tra, whatever you want to call it. Whatever you want to use term-wise is fine. Um, I like the Norse gods, like the Norse mythology, like the history, uh, like the people, uh, like modern neo-pagans. I'm currently studying a master's of research um, in psychology. Uh, with the question that I'm focusing on being what attracts people primarily to neo-paganism paganism today? Like, what is it that makes them want to be neo-pagan in the first place? That's that's me pretty much. I've got an interest in axe throwing as well. Um, I'm, I'm okay at that. At and I like, I like books and, and staying inside. And staying inside? Yeah. <laughs> Relatable. Yeah. Outside the world's terrible. Except for forests. There are no people in forests. Forests are great. They're fine. There are no people in the forest. Oh, it's so nice. So today we're talking about Voluspa. And this is, to me, a, one of the fucking greatest masterpieces in all of Norse lore. Like, yeah. I absolutely love this poem. Essentially, it opens the conversation of the cosmos, like the creation of the cosmos, the organization of the cosmos. Um, Odin wakes this Volva or Cirrus or witch, however you want to, however you want to look at it and is asking her a bunch of questions and she goes into the creation of the world and then she kind of traces the emergence of the gods the establishment of cosmic order via the Aesir tribe and then kind of how everything connects and then it gets into this prophecy this prophecy of the the twilight of the gods and we're talking like cosmic conflict and it kind of just lead you through all of the major pivotal moments in Norse mythology? Yeah, no, I, I think the Velas was like one of the most interesting poems, especially because it's like usually the first one you read is, is, is always going to be one of the most interesting. It sets a stage, doesn't it? It's sort of the world building story. It's like, this is everything you'll need to know roughly to, to understand what the characters are doing and moving through, or at least what the general scope of the story is. It's, it's a fantastic setting. But I mean, the, the prophecy of Ragnarok is, is just on its own. A fascinating metaphor because it's it's a really strong example of this cyclical circular thinking of everything is happening everything has happened and everything is going to happen again it's it what does that mean and, and like you know you have to break that apart and it speaks to the poetic understanding of the people at the time yes although i guess you could argue snorri sturluson's understanding of the people's poetry at the time but like it's 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 one of those premium sort of rich stories and metaphors that you can share with people who aren't even interested in this sort of thing and they'll be kind of captivated by it because it's such a root concept like yeah. the Ouroboros symbol the idea of the you know Jormungandr eating his own tail and you know time eating itself uh, is is a very cool concept I think for most humans to think about right right exactly like where the beginning and where the ending is like there is no beginning or ending you know it's that it's that concept of continuation uh, even even through this insane level of destruction. Um, but like getting into the prophecy of Ragnarok, the, the the heart of Ragnarok really lies in this this insane cosmic battle between forces that are 
you know, nearly incomprehensible. Like these are cosmic forces, gods, mythical beings, primordial forces. And the poem, we're talking like the major players in Norse mythology. We've got Odin, we have Thor, we have Heimdall, we have Tyr, we have all of these major forces. Loki Hmm. are confronting each other. We have creation and destruction literally clashing in a really intense scene, super intense, this divine struggle against chaotic forces, this, this organized group being utterly shattered, right? By the things that are, they have tried to control. I think it's really interesting too. It's kind of the, it's kind of the first place that we see Odin's seeking of knowledge. And I honestly think that there's a Kenning in the Havamal that comes from this, right? Because the Havamal is kind of just like the poetic Edda boiled down into into Kennings. I suppose, yeah. I mean, it is it is Odin's advice from his stories. I suppose it's his wisdom from what he's read, well, from what you're reading. I suppose it is right. one way of thinking about it. Yeah. There's one one stanza that sticks out to me particularly, and that's stanza fifty six, and it mm-hmm. says, "You should be only a little wise, never too wise." It is best not to know your fate beforehand. You will live happier if you don't. <laughs> I'm like a man is seldom wise. A man is seldom ever happy if he is too wise. Yes, like exactly. Probably. Yeah, that's the one right but, before it. Yeah, that's fifty five. That's stuck in my head for a long time. Actually, I think I when I was in a very sad place, I remember myself taking a photo of that particular stanza and posting it to my Instagram just to, to be extra dramatic. But well, um, I mean, absolutely, you must. It, Odin as a character is like, he's really, really nicely demonstrated again in the Velospa that, that like, you're right, his lust for knowledge, his, well, his need for knowledge need. is really what we're, we're pinpointing. Because, uh, I mean, the witch, I believe, the Volva r- repeatedly answers at the end of, her, sorry, she answers him, but then at the end of it says, have you heard enough now? Like, yeah. Like, and it's it's not it doesn't sound to me like in the reading of it it doesn't sound like an aggressive like have you have you heard enough from me can you go away now it sounds more like um you know are, are you sure you want to keep learning you know what that's a really good that's a really good take on it because like even in different translations my favorite translation um she asked would you know yet more and it really is kind of that are you sure yeah you sure you, you want, want me to keep going like and so at first i thought it was kind of like a cocky thing like would you know yet more like here i am telling you this stuff but i actually really i really appreciate that take on it like that seems to fit a little bit better like you sure you want to get into this? <laughs> I, I think for me, it's, I'm perhaps projecting a, something of a bias onto Odin as a character. I think I see him as something of a sad, tragic character um, because of the nature of his almost uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. He he makes everything happen, but after he learns that it's going to happen, in the attempt trying to not do it, does it? It's a, it's a very common sort of trope in storytelling with time travel being a factor or with, you know, prophecy, where yeah. the character fights their hardest and causes it to happen. Self-fulfilling. Exactly. And it's sad because we could, I think everyone could appreciate, it's like, you know, who doesn't empathize with the concept of struggling, say, emotionally, but maybe that emotional struggle manifests in ways that cause you problems with dealing with it. And it's almost like the, the harder you fight, the more that becomes a problem, the more that becomes overpowering and you don't really get it right. 100%. Well, and that happens even if you don't have a fucking serious telling you what's coming next. My anxiety <laughs> fills in the blanks for me and I'm fighting, I'm fighting against possible outcomes that I have literally created in my head, you know? And it is usually fear-driven, which I feel... Odin's hmm. actions following this prophecy are fear-driven. Yeah. In fact, I kind of see Fenrir as the uh, embodiment of Odin's fear. 
I think I think many people would agree with you. I've I've often said that I think of Odin as having dementophobia. He is terrified of the concept of many things, but most importantly, losing control, losing mm. control of himself. Most most certainly, and it's uh, when he's talking about Hugin and Munin, um, you know, saying, "I fear one day they won't come back, and I'll be left without my memory." And that is right. an interesting fear that is manifested in Fenrir. Uh, this wolf that will swallow him, that will kill him and eat him as if he's just prey. It's all, it's almost like he he gets... Because um, to be eaten, to be consumed by something, is actually to say that you are inferior to that thing, usually, or to say that you're subservient automatically, because you're food for it Absolutely. in that moment. There's a there's a carnal symbology going on. Yep. Um, I, I think it's fascinating that he thinks of it as as that. And then you see similar descriptions of, of depression in, in people like Winston Churchill, who talked about feeling like a black wolf was following him. And this, this metaphor makes sense, um, I think, because... What is more terrifying than a social animal that has been driven to the brink where it is alone now and it has no family and it is desperate and it is hungry and it's all consuming. It's like, that's a metaphor, in my opinion, for someone who's desperate for connection and needs to do that with people but can't get themselves there because of what's going on inside of them. Um, I know we want to talk about Fenrir in a bit, but like he's he's on his own, interesting. Odin is just... I don't know. He's he's tragic. He's sad. He he's not a bright character. It seems in the end, he's very intelligent and very wise. Right. But he misses some vital stuff very clearly. Um, so what does that say about everyone else, though? Is kind of is kind of the point. It's like if if even the head of your pantheon is very flawed and has multiple flaws, not just a few, right. uh, and so do all the other gods. They've all got something going on. Um, what does that say about ordinary people and their potential and, you know, what, what you, you can do with what, you know, you know, your particular brand of issue or problem, which, which right. there is a diversity of, it seems, represented in the Pantheon. 100%. Absolutely. I love that, though, because then we can see pieces of ourselves in not just one, you know, and we can see redeeming qualities that they hold, too. And so, like, that we can also strive to emulate, you know, yeah. like, they may be facing this, but here's how they do this. And I admire this, you know, and like giving us a giving us an avenue or inspiration for an avenue to build ourselves you know what you you made me think of when you were saying Fenrir and when I I remember when I first read the stories when I read about Fenrir do you know what immediately sprang to mind for me I don't, I don't know sorry I was gonna say I don't know. <laughs> you don't come on um, it it brought to mind you had to have seen this the never-ending story Oh, what, Falcor? No, the the Black Wolf in NeverEnding oh, Story. I don't remember the NeverEnding Story, apparently. Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. Okay. There, there is this point where, and it's been forever since I've seen it, too, but I remember being a kid and watching the NeverEnding Story and watching this wolf with glowing eyes, like, creep out of the bushes, and it was, like, the embodiment of fear, right? And it worked okay. alongside the nothing, essentially. Like, it was just another, like, aspect of that, but, like, hmm. creeping out of the bushes and horrifying me as a child and as soon as i read about fenrir that is immediately what sprang to mind i I think i get that that makes sense though like i'm sure if you looked i mean i don't know if you looked into the meta context of that like going to see what the authors were intending with that scene but like it's probable they probably took influence from that because the the image of a black wolf being sort of this this embodiment of fear or danger is actually pretty common um across like most Indo-European cultures, it seems. Oh, it's like, an incredibly common of, omen. Like the yeah. Isle of Man, I think, off the top of my head, the Isle of Man's mythology has a black wolf as part of it. Um, really? That is, is the embodiment of sort of, you know, danger or something to that extent. But I believe, like, I'm pretty sure that, like, the Anglo-Saxons, Irish, 
uh, Celts, um, you know, um, and all for all form of the Nordics, like all those ancient religions had a concept of a black wolf or a predator like it that embodied fear, because that's that seems kind of automatic for most cultures. Like a crocodile is pretty dangerous and scary, so you make that the embodiment of say a particular form of death. You make the yeah. jackal another one, you know, and you anthropomorphize as you go, which you, which you see in a lot of these pagan um, religions in the first place. This, idea of animalistic traits almost 100 percent. they embody the emotion that they evoke yeah for sure like an eagle is all purveying and sees everything and yeah. is able to fly very far or a raven is the same thing well and even ravens out. especially with how clever they are and how smart they are yeah i completely like, completely agree imagine being on a boat and, and you know you're, you're you're riding off to, to sorry you're sailing off to england or something you've got some ravens on board and they start speaking back to you i'd probably be like yeah you're pretty magical <laughs> Absolutely, hundred percent. I'd be pretty impressed. I'd be like, "This bird can talk." <laughs> oh shit, you guys! <laughs> the the thing with Fenrir is is, I think he makes more sense with his own story when we when we talk about like the binding of Fenrir later, um, alongside the Velusper, The context of that makes it more complete. You know, we're we're given this presentation where a big black wolf kills and eats Odin, but like we don't exactly know fully why yet we haven't got the emotional drive of the story without that part of you know tears betrayal but it's the context then that makes it make more direct sense Fenrir is is not necessarily an enemy to begin with but he becomes an enemy later when Odin's fear of what he will do to the family um, potentially but potentially causes him to betray Fenrir essentially and forces Tyr to betray him and it's like Odin did that he he broke his family in his attempt to save it uh, which is you know, with that family concept embodying it, the whole pantheon being there and participating in this, it yeah. makes more sense that Fenrir is a fear of the demise of that unit. And it makes more sense in the context, perhaps, of the society it's from, because the family was everything. So if you, didn't have, your, if you didn't have your family, you were done for. So of course, your fearful representation takes that away from you. So Fenrir, as a character, I think, represents the shadow, um, which is a Jungian idea, um, sorry, a Carl, Carl Jung idea, mm-hmm. Um, when he discusses these elements of people in their psychology that uh, they do not want to acknowledge, that they they, contr- they contradict the ego in it, in a sense. Or yeah, so they just either. deny it. Like, yeah, you just deny it, you hide it. So it's like, maybe I'm an aggressive person in my nature, or I've had some trauma that's made me aggressive, but I'm also a people pleaser, so I want to suppress that element and make myself more appealing to others, you know? I want to be liked, so I don't let people know that I'm something like that. I hide it to an extent. Um Confronting the shadow, or shadow work, as people tend to call it these days, is the idea of looking at your shadow on purpose and digging through it and saying, you know, why actually do I feel this way and how can I control that? How can I use, how can I incorporate that into myself? It's all about the idea of incorporating these other parts of yourself into yourself more uh, comprehensively. Yeah. Uh, Because without them, you aren't you. Fenrir represents the shadow quite nicely, I think, because one, he's a big black wolf, so he looks like a shadow, which is already a good start. Right. Um... But um, Tia is the god of justice and war, I believe, who is, you know, being nice to Fenrir this whole time, who is, uh, you know, dealing with him, feeding him, uh, talking to him at least, and involving him. Uh, until the gods have the whole thing of like, let's put a magic ribbon on Fenrir because Odin is terrified of him and he's going to kill us. So Fenrir is friends with Tyr, in essence. Tyr is friends with Fenrir. Tyr is treating Fenrir, Tyr is dealing with Fenrir, Tyr talks to him, engages with him. This is a good idea. And it, it actually works out pretty well. I mean, there's no issues that we know of between Fenrir and Tyr. They seem to be buddies right. in some sense. The gods then demand that you betray him and, you know, do all the stuff. Tyr agrees to do it, uh, loses his hand. In doing that, 
they sort of set Odin's fate. By locking away with an invisible thread wrapped around Venrir, they have bound him and they have tried to push him out. They've tried to get rid of him, but without dealing with him. He's not right. dead. Right. He's just stuck. So um, And he's still there. Yeah, he's still there waiting. So you've pushed it down, you've gotten rid of it as much as you can, and then years and years later, suddenly, pops up again. And it bites you really hard and kills you. Uh, more importantly, it kills your family. Um, so th- that for me is like really poignant. It-, it makes sense to say Fenrir is the shadow in this context. That's who he is as an archetype. He is something you don't deal with, something you avoid. And in Odin's case, it's probably this fear he has of death that he is avoiding. Um, but Tyr is welcoming to it. And this is where I find the symbology of Tyr losing his hand interesting. Because I believe he loses his first hand to Fenrir when he gets, gets it bitten off. Tyr faces his destiny, but loses his hand. Odin faces, uh, does not face his destiny, really, and end up dying. Although Tyr has lost his ability to, to will himself through life by surrendering to the fact that there are parts of him that he has to deal with, he has gained something for it, a peace almost, in a sense. Yeah. But he loses his will. Whereas Odin keeps his will, but he dies as a result of wanting to keep it in the first place. There's other ways to read it, but for me, that's the story there, the moral, if you like, is... Yeah. Don't try to hold too tightly to this thing. Don't try to not deal with it. Um, because, yeah, you may lose your hands. You may lose your will, your, your ability to determine your destiny if you accept these parts of you aren't going away. Well, because when you chain it and it's not going away, it is sitting back there growing and growing and growing to the point where yeah. when Ragnarok comes, it's said that his jaw stretches from the ground up to the sky. So this, this now this massive thing that you cannot overcome. It will yeah. overpower you. I think these, these stories are like almost accidentally commenting on these topics, though. I don't think anyone, I don't think Story Sellers was sat there thinking, yeah, I'm going to write some Jungian psychology a few hundred years earlier. I think I think it's more, you, you know, the, these are elements of stories that Jung has noticed and is, is very much noticed as part of human psychology as well. Yes. It's part of who we are. For how, however many heathens there are, that's how many um, different perspectives you're going to get on Ragnarok like you have a conversation with literally anybody everybody's going to have different ideas and so we'll definitely unpack that a little bit later um but you know so we have these we have these giant clashes between these forces and there's also like this this it not only speaks to the to the twilight of the gods, right? But it's also saying like the destruction of the world itself. We're seeing the sun turn black, the stars vanish, the stars are gone. <laughs> Does it say they fall into the sea? I can't remember. Something like that. Things are not good. Yeah, definitely not good. Think things are tragic. <laughs> things are bad. <laughs> brother fights brother. Fires, yeah. earthquakes. <laughs> There's all sorts of things. But then after all of this, after we see you know, this clash of these huge forces, there is once again, uh, the rebirth, like there's, there's, there's a new beginning. And like the, from the, from the ashes of Ragnarok, this new world appears and it's all bright and shiny and happy. And uh, there's said to be two human survivors. Now, this is something that people take quite literally, but Mm. I, I, I never have simply, and it just is because of their names. Like their name is Leif. And Leif Thrasir, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Um, I think I think you're saying that right. <laughs> but like, so that the first name is life, and then the second name is like the struggle or strive for life. I, I think it's lover of life is what I know it as, but that sounds right too. I, I yeah. don't know for sure. I'm not a fluent speaker of old Norse. No, no, God, no, me either. But like that, that, 
that concept though of that whatever it is that's making the drive for existence you're seeing those two things paired and that is kind of the continuation that's what's required for the continuation of humankind i just i cannot i cannot imagine not seeing the symbology in all of the things of this story like to just see it at surface level like the the idea that fear overtakes odin or this this being that he created himself um and tried to shove away overtakes him and then is uh healed i'm also seeing this healing it's kind of like the your next generation heals the trauma that you experienced before and it doesn't yeah. have to be through this big grand weapon, this big grand army that you were trying to set yourself up. Because like Odin is the chief of the gods. Odin has a spear that never misses. And then his son comes in with a fucking boot and takes care of business. You know what I mean? So it's just like, yeah. and then looking at um, the the transformative process of fire, like we're looking at all these forces of destruction coming at the things that we know of as order and structure. And it it's not just destruction. Like we're liter- literally looking at the transformation. Um, uh, it's, it's the burning away, the letting go of that for something new to emerge. You cannot deny that that's there in, in the story. The, the sun and the stars, everything winking out um, for me personally, that, that is speaking to um the enlightenment of the human journey, right? Like this is a this is a common theme in story where light and stars and illumination literally means the illumination within the mind, like your your knowledge, your wisdom, your learning. And with that eclipse of those lights going out and going dim, like it, plunging the world into darkness is like to me, it's kind of speaking of getting to a place where we we have forgotten that. But then we we start building it back up again. There are things that we forget. There's things that history repeats itself. There's there's lessons we don't learn, even in our own personal lives. If we don't learn a lesson, we do see the cycle repeat until we yeah. fucking get it. It's very normal for that to happen, though. It's very normal that people forget things about what happened in the past and don't apply the lessons because there is no cohesive identity that is long lasting. It is a collection of individuals, which kind of leads towards the problem of like there there are distinctive modes of thought and it's in you it's not something that you grow with or something that's socialized into you it is it is something that you are innately prone to doing right that is nurtured or not nurtured and that's that's kind of my perspective to it so so i've often described my faith as cognitive faith i don't literally believe that odin is an entity sitting somewhere and observing things i think of him as as a, as a characterization of a particular type of person and an idea same with all the other gods. So you'll meet an Odin, you'll meet a Thor, you'll meet a Frigga, Freya, etc. And for someone like me, that's particularly helpful because it's just, you know, I can I can entune myself to that concept um, and it makes it easier to deal with people. It's like, I've met you before. So like, why would I be worried about meeting you again? So it's, it's, okay. like, it's a nice, wholesome connection. Yeah, I like that. Um, for me though, that, that was the first clue to step back a bit more and say, well, from a deconstructionist uh, or deconstructivist uh, perspective, what does this story embody? What is it trying to, to, to give to people? Uh, and what is it what is it translating in terms of feeling in terms of of evocation was it aiming to get used to think and i think the point of the ragnarok ending the the, the what comes after with the inclusion of leaf and lifrasir and uh Nuthover and so forth these these different things persist these things are eternal these things don't go away these things will always be here uh, in our world. Right. So it's like these are intrinsic to humans is what I would take away from that. They're trying to say that no matter what society you have, you get these things. Um, something new comes after it. It has a life, it dies, and another one comes again. And this will always be happening. Yes. We had 
Ask and Embla in the ver- in the beginning, and then our ending we have Leaf and Lithrasia to start it over again. And it's I think it's poignant to remember that when this was more of a practice in in Europe in general, when this was more of a thing, when tree worship was still going on, when we had coins with Odin in uh, in the fifth century, I think to the tenth yeah. that period. That's what we're trying to aim for. Um, <laughs> that that time period for me sticks out as a really self-aware time period. They seem to have a consciousness about the fragility of their existence, at least in their in their poetry. Um, and I think that's because, well, really, these are the these are sort of the people who came after, you know, Rome had been a thing for such a long time. Uh, to the extent that they copied some of their tactics, or they maintained some of their tactics, they kept some things. Uh, you know, the concepts survive and keep going, uh, even if certain other things take a dip and other things come up as well. Um, this is a this is a beautiful snapshot of human history where we have a self-aware moment, I think is all, because uh, what happens in every society is pretty obvious. Like our society is currently going through it, I think. Yes. Um, you know, the civilization ends in some fashion and then another one has to come up out of it as a result of necessity because it's right. not like people disappear. Rome may no. have fallen, the, mall, the walls may have crumbled, but people are still around, so they need to do something. So you make right. a new one and you start again. And I think that's, that's beautiful. As, an, as, as a, a contradiction almost to this finite ending presented in other mythologies, which is not to say they're bad, just that I don't find them as fun. Right. No. And, and it doesn't make sense because to me, and it, this is kind of always why this, this, the way that they capture the cyclical nature of life, the universe, everything, literally everything that is woven into the structure of everything, um, that there is no beginning and end there. Every conclusion is a new beginning. You cannot separate the two. You really can't. No, because it's, it's not it's nothing just ceases there's always yeah. just something coming from it well, well what is destruction but another form of creation if i exactly. burn something i've not destroyed it i've transformed it i've changed it um exactly. if i pick up a rock and throw it across a lake to the other side of the lake and break another rock technically speaking you could argue that i've created two smaller rocks you know and <laughs> I did a cool trick in the process so i created some beauty absolutely out of it. so it's like creation and destruction for me they're obviously going to be bound in a symbiosis in every mythology, I think. I don't think there's anyone that doesn't have that kind of a concept, as far as I'm aware, where they are enemies in a sense that's like not cyclical or um, symbiotic. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a really good characterization, I think, of the yin-yang concept, this, you know, light and darkness go together. You can call them creation or destruction or any other bimodal sort of concept. Right. It'll work. Um, but that's how humans work. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very... Uh, what's the word evocative of animistic concepts the idea that everything has a unique life everything is individual in its own way a rock has life and then we see studies that demonstrate that minerals actually trend towards greater complexity over time much like living things do which is kind of a cool natural it's fascinating thing to see you know emergence of complex ideas yes you wanted to talk about other cultures i'm I'm pretty happy to, to touch on some of them Yes, please, actually. And that's the, that's the one thing that when we were planning for this episode, when you started getting into it, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be a great conversation. Because <laughs> not a lot of people, uh, at least not, the, okay, I won't say not a lot of people. If from my lens, from my, from where I sit, right, and the people that I speak with every day, the people that I work with every day, yeah. not a lot of people will look outside of um, the Norse cosmos, Me, I mean, me included, right? Not a lot of that has drawn my interest. Um, and there's so much here 
that I'm still here in it a decade later. Like I have never left here just because I can never stop learning. There's never an end. Right. And I'm just fucking fascinated by all of it. Um, But you have, you have a much broader lens of the world and different cultures and the human psyche in general. Right. To an extent, to an extent, I think it's because I've studied psychology to an extent, like in Jungian terms and in in other similar stuff. Like that's why I know a little bit about other places and other conceptualizations, but it's, it's also just a special interest thing. I'm fascinated by, um mythologies because they tell such fantastic stories about neurology i think like you can tell a lot about a culture in terms of what the psychology of the time was like what what the the norm was by what is accepted as normal in terms of religion um and it's very difficult to to do that as a as like a, a hobby i think just because it you can't really look at people's brains in the past that's not doable right when looking at story um, and noting that there is an interaction between those two things, those two phenomena. Um, one influences the other and the other influences it back. There's an interactivity right. between them. So stories shape us, we shape stories. Yeah. We are slightly different from each other and we do that in different ways. This causes a beautiful tapestry of complexity, but also gives us some general trends to look at. Yes. Usually there's some form of like world ending event, like at least yeah. in terms of like, if it's not in future reference, it's always in recent reference or past reference, sorry, rather. Um, like flood myths are pretty ubiquitous, I think. Like most most cultures have a flood myth of some kind. Um, the story of the Seven Sisters, uh, the Pleiades, that's a story that's been told for possibly 100,000 years. Um, this is quite a cool one, actually. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar, are you familiar with the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades? No, I'm not actually. Okay, so it's, it's a constellation, um, is all you really need to know. It's a constellation of seven stars. However, to the naked eye, you can only see six. Um, and in the stories, uh, one of the sisters is missing or dead, um, depending on which version you read. Now, this is interesting because it's like, well, how did people know that there were seven before, you know, that we had telescopes and things, before we could see there were, were seven? We could Because uh, two of the stars are very close together now in terms of like where they line up. So they look like one light to the mm. naked eye. So that's why you need a telescope to see two of them, um, to see the seventh. But how did they know before that is the interesting thing. Well, there is a time in history where you could have seen them as seven because they hadn't drifted close together yet. You know when that would have been? A hundred thousand years ago. Oh my goodness. Yeah, right? That's looking wild. Neat. So, so the Epic of Gilgamesh is just the first thing we have written down in terms of a complete story. That's that's seven or eight thousand years ago from the top of my head. There, I'm, I'm guessing that. But like, we've we've been telling stories for a long time, a long, long time. There are cave paintings that show animals and stuff that have been uh, dead for like fifty thousand or forty thousand years or something. Um, but but they're done by humans, so yeah. we were around at the same time, presumably. It's very entertaining to think about uh, humans in the last three hundred thousand years being the same anatomical shape like having the same brain, having the same stuff going on, basically. So why wouldn't you tell similar stories? What if story is innate? What if it's built into, you know, what if it's a consequence of the bits that we are, the world that we have, and the brain that we have? Because of this stuff, we have the same storytelling modes every single time to embody permanent concepts. Like the sun rises and falls every single single day. That's just the way it works. That's never going away. Um, Humans will always be depressed sometimes humans will always have problems some humans lose their minds um you know it it doesn't ever change for humans really that's right because i was i guess where my brain was going is are other apocalyptic stories are they this story of 
Like, is there usually like a renewal and rebirth after, or well, is it more of a, it's an apocalypse story to, to create fear? You know what I mean? Or like create a, create a system of behavior. Oh, I think, I think all, all religions in an organized fashion are kind of designed by humans to elicit a certain type of behavior because they yeah. set a social standard usually in some essence. I mean, um, you could look at um, systems where there is no necessary ending or apocalyptic event. I mean, I don't know off the top of my dome again much about Buddhism and its various flavors. That yeah. you, there's quite a lot of different types of Buddhas, it turns out. Um, but the idea of like the karmic cycle, for example, is like you don't you don't find an ending there. It sort of it keeps going again and again and again. And and I think off again off the top of my dome, not my expertise, but Eastern religions as a whole um, tend to have some sort of cyclical nature to yes. it. Yes. Um, but I don't know if that's like specific to that area of the world or if it, that is something, again, like inherent to a lot of humans, because you find it mostly in pagan religions that there is some concept of movement that does not change. Right. Whereas it's the, it's the monotheistic religions that tend to have a very um, there is an ending to this story. Uh, there right. is there's an end that has to come and something happens. Um, it, it can vary, though. Um, but even that has variation. Like I don't think Judaists have. I don't think I've ever gotten a clear answer from a, a rabbi or a Jewish person about what the the afterlife is supposed to be or look like necessarily. Um, it's it's more of a it's not something they think about too often is is what is what I've been told is is what I, get, I tend to get the response of. But many people have different conceptualizations of it even within those communities. So so the problem of like what is the ending in the story is like well which story are you telling because you get a different answer each time. So right yeah. You know, uh, but the pattern of like cycles seems to be a pagan idea, seems to yeah. be this. And that makes sense when you think about why you would have multiple gods in the first place. You want something that represents the the actual world in a, in a symbolic way. Yes. Um, and you can't, my extent of mythology understanding is really to bolster my psychological stuff. Like I, yeah. I use these metaphors and symbols as a way of understanding people. Um, I think it's like a it's like a sneaky doorway into their minds. When you understand what people believe, you understand how they function. You understand what their perspective of the world is. It's not just the little things; it's the big things. Um, most of the Christians that I've met, for example, uh, they can be nice or they can be not nice, like everyone can be. But right. they all share certain ideas about how to navigate their life. Lots of them feel a need for purpose and meaning. Uh, that is more abstract you know there is a there there is a, a story that is being told with them at the center or they're being dragged along it in some way um but it's direct it's linear you know you're going to heaven you're going to hell you're going to here or there yes. whereas the the pagan perspective neo-pagan more specifically here um now seems to be more broad I mean, it seems to be you go wherever you go is is quite common or you go where you deserve to go Sorry, you go where you not deserve to go, but where you are appropriate to. So like if you're right. a farmer in life, when you die and you've, if you've done nothing special, you're a farmer again. That's that's fine. If you're a Viking and you go die in a heroic battle, you get a coin flipped for your life and then one of the two take you. If you were good enough, you know, Odin or Freya takes you. Right. Um, but, you know, if you're in a karmic cycle, you, you do something particularly bad, you die, you become a slug, you lay a perfect trail of slime, you get to move up the chain again. And maybe you just reincarnate into a human, perhaps, and it's just humans that get get that done to them. Which raises the question, it's like, well, does that ever have an ending? And it's like, well, no, but right. would you expect it to have an ending, really? Would it make sense that humans' psychological ideas, which are really abstract ideas, would they ever go away as long as humans existed? I don't think so. No. They're fixed. They, they, they stay with us. 
I absolutely agree. I think that that's an interesting thing too. When we're talking about the afterlife and Ragnarok, even that's a common question. This is a common, this is a common string of questions when you're talking with heathens is this idea. And this is why I wanted to get into, you know, modern heathen interpretation, which I'm just going to kind of jump ahead into that because it's fine, that's conversation. Fine. Um, what, the, the string of questions we most often get, or I most often get, is um, the literalist approach, right? Where it's like, you know, Ragnarok has not happened yet because we haven't seen the earth fall into the sea. We haven't seen these cataclysmic events. The sun is still in the sky, so Ragnarok hasn't happened. They see it as a a very literal apocalyptic scenario. They're right. waiting for the Fimble winter. They're waiting. Yes, exactly, for it. exactly. <laughs> Which I mean, technically, and and this we'll get into it. But like, if they if they are waiting for this literal apocalypse, it's it's fascinating to me because it does kind of ring to me of of these monotheistic religions where it's like, um, what is what is the point of the end then? Like, are they still are they still focused on this life and what they do with their community? Um, or is it more of that like fatalist uh, way of thinking where it's like, I've got to do all of this before the world ends. I've got to do good. I've got to be good. I've got to, you know what I mean? Cause the end I, is coming. It, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing particularly. I just find it really interesting to be no, literal with it. I'd agree. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it, it can be a very good thing potentially, but um, I mean, this is, this is the crux of what I'm curious about in psychology and why I have, and this is going to sound like a non sequitur, and I do apologize, it's not. It's very much related to what you're saying. Um, but this is why my focus is on things like ADHD and autism. In the context of um, the, the prophecy of Ragnarok, of the Velosper, and the characters we see in, its, in, in this first presentation to Norse mythology, you could think, most people are going to see that first. You are given a full range of characters, of individuals who are different in multiple beautiful ways, and you are being told that Everything is a cycle. Everything is a, is a metaphor. Everything has double meaning. Everything is kind of poetic and fluid. A kenning is popular to be used. You know, you're going to twist words around and be clever about it. Um, I'm not telling you literally what things are, but I am illustrating what things are still. Um, this concept of autism is new to us as a word, but in, in terms of what it is, that concept of a person who is not quite like other people, a person who is more individual, who is different, who is more akin to Loki, perhaps, is there and has been there the entire time. And it's not going away. It's part of the cycle. Right. So whatever interactions we have between ourselves, well, for whatever reason we have them, um, I think all of it's natural. I think all of it's expected. I think we just don't necessarily think of it as expected because we have a weird perspective. Well, I mean, <laughs> is it weird? I, I feel like it's a learned perspective, though. But that is weird, isn't it? Like, you, you, most people don't question their own perspectives. Yeah. We, everyone could say that it's quite a popular thing to point out it's like do you question yourself do you introspect do you meditate and it's like well most people don't but it's then again true. most people aren't autistic but that's also <laughs> hard for me to grasp because most of the people that i and again i'm looking through an extremely small lens right i'm only looking through my own personal lens most of the people that are around me that stay around me are people that are comfortable with me and have similar yeah. <laughs> patterns as me so like i'm like most people are holistic how how well, this is the thing. You've cultivated a friendship group. And this is known that ADHD and autistic people gather together in spaces like this. This is a community space. 
and like I'm saying, there might be an attraction for these individuals in this specific sub-niche. Like, uh, like the Heart of the Wild itself might be a particular attractor for these individuals. And maybe you, as a person, because you're central to it, because you have some of these traits, perhaps, who knows, are attracted to those individuals as well. And that's why you sort of gather together. I mean, it's, it's not exactly rocket science. Um, there are cliques of people in schools that gather together. That's just normal. Why would why would you not uh, go by your vibe and your tribe? Uh, it's the safest possible way to do things. Yeah. But the difference is, are you a collection of individuals or are you a group? So I'm just sort of trying to illustrate. It's like, are you a Norse pagan and you are part of Norse paganism because you are a Norse pagan? That is your identity and that's it. Or is it that there's something about you that likes Norse paganism because of how it relates to you in a personal way? Mm. So did you like Lord of the Rings? Did you like, um, you know, Tolkien's uh, work overall? Did you like reading Tolkien's work? Uh, did you, uh, in, do you enjoy Icelandic history? Do you enjoy Finnish history or just Scandinavian history? Do you enjoy Roman history and then find yourself moving through to Viking uh, history and then into paganism? But everyone comes at this from a different angle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what gives it away that this is not a group identity. This is a collection of individuals. There's a different reason they're all together. And it's probably as simple as I like you and I'd like to hang out with you and, and, I, and I enjoy your company versus I'm part of this group. So I'm going to stay in this group. Does, yeah. Does that make sense as a difference? Oh, it absolutely <laughs> does. It absolutely does. And I see, I see a bit of both. I see a bit of both, but far less of just I'm Norse pagan. And so we are all Norse pagans together. Everyone's got, Everyone's got a different thing about it, haven't they? It's yeah. like, I don't want to bring up any individuals in particular. I don't want to call anyone out or anything. But like for me, for example, I'm interested in it because I'm interested in psychology. It's just like you, you can come at this from any perspective and it works because these poems are illustrating life. So everyone's involved. There's, there's a representation for every person. That yeah. works out nicely. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, I've never really thought about why I'm into it. I think that it's, um, I think that for me, it's more of the, I feel like so much has been lost in the, in the evolution <laughs> of, of our society, uh, yeah. since the arch heathens. Um, and I, I crave that connection. I crave the connection to the structure of the universe, to the cycles of nature, to, to the spirit of nature itself, you know, to the connection with the cosmos, with the order of things, with the chaos of things like I want to I want to understand the deep comprehension and connectivity that my ancestors had with the forces that be you know what I mean like I've always been drawn to that I've, I've always kind of had an animistic worldview where like I recognize that the energy of the mountains is different than the energy of this river. They're different. They're different things to me. They're different beings to me. Uh, yeah, no, I agree fully. That, that, that's my experience as well. That that there is a there is an essence to different stuff in nature. Um, you know, a mountain is always quite stoic. I think everyone gets that. Everyone feels that that a mountain is unmoving in its characteristics. It, it may not be living, but it is alive in quality. Uh, the leaves in a tree can dance even though they are not living uh well they are living but like you know different kind of living different yeah. not animals i suppose what? To a degree. but like clouds clouds can be alive skies can be alive people can be alive even when they're dead if you tell their story well enough so it's I, I feel like that's always going to be true um and and maybe you're right that that attraction of like giving a meaning to things giving a um relationship rather 
to everything. It, everything moves together. You know, yes. the rock is on the stream or in the stream. The salmon can't get past the rock. The beaver picks up a, a tree, make, starts making a dam, gets in the way. The rock shunts uh, when the, the dam breaks because there's enough force. The fish can get moving again. Everything's going. It's like there's stories that play out without any human interaction. It's interesting to think about how, how people interpret the story. The, a lot of questions that come up you know, has Ragnarok happened? Will it happen again? Um, oh, sure. There's, there's the people that will relate it to, to their own kind of like, kind of like we were talking about their own um, psychological and personal growth, their own understanding of, of their own struggles, the way that their brain works, the way that their life works. They're seeing their own personal Ragnarok. And that is kind of in everything is a cycle. Everything, everything has a beginning, a culmination, um, you know, and then a, an ending and a beginning again to something new, something new comes from that. And that happens over and over and over in our lives on different levels too. That can be, you know, we're looking at the layers of our life. We're looking at not just our, our life span, right. But we're also looking at the experiences, um, the, your, your relationships, your connections, your financial struggles, your career, the things that you study, everything, every single thing, every aspect of your life, you could go through that cycle more than once. You could have that, the, the creation of this thing, the spark, the seed, the growth, the, the instability and the restability, and then the, the, the falling apart and something new comes from that. That is how that works in everything, in everything. And so like looking at it from a, a personal growth standpoint, you know, like the themes of the, of the, of Ragnarok being a metaphor for your personal trials or, um, overcoming demons or, or becoming stronger through growth and experience. I would say you could use it that way. Cause like, when we, like I've said, you could use neurology, personal individual differences to rep, uh, to sort of extrapolate big concepts and why people have those bigger concepts. For, for Ragnarok, it's a metaphor, for me at least, of the ending of one civilization transitioning into another. But you could do that with people as well. I'm sure that many people will empathize with this concept. It's a bit personal, but I would, I would often say to my friends and stuff, like, if I've reinvented myself, it doesn't feel like I've reinvented myself. It feels like I've died and someone else has, has taken over from where I left off. You know, someone else fills the spot and I grow into something new uh, that replaces what has been lost. Uh, every seven years, you replace most of your cells in your body. Things like that. Um, you have to refresh and renew, but to do that requires death. And I think the story of Ragnarok has got kind of comforting because it's like death is not some scary thing. Death is not something that is going to cause you any harm, actually. It, 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 not in the long run. Right. It, it, it might hurt someone you know personally to you. It might be something that is happening around you. Your society, your family, your life might be ending, but something else comes after it. So don't panic about it too much. The story is not over. It's just right. that your turn is done now. Right. And I, I love the, the sort of clash and conflict of the new and the old in the ending of Ragnarok in regards to Vida. And how he uses that big leather boot to push into Fenrir's mouth and rip his jaw off. Very, very poetic imagery, I think. Very violent imagery, rather, sorry. Um, but beautiful at the same time. It's yeah. like some King Kong level stuff. It's like he broke his jaw off. Okay, cool. I'm down with that. That's pretty metal. But the 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 sort of inter-relationship, inter, inter um, it, it's not just about one form of life. It's about multiple forms of life intersecting and interacting. Boulder coming back from the dead is, is the big one here um, towards the end. Um, 
but it makes sense if we're thinking of Snorri Sturluson and his Christianization sort of period and like thinking, well, maybe Boulder might be Jesus. Maybe he snuck that kind of in there a little bit to an extent. You could argue that Boulder is kind of influenced by Jesus as a thing. You could argue that. You could. But that isn't a problem. Because no. maybe that's what he was, maybe that's what they were talking about. Maybe that was the point. It's like we we anticipate that the Christians are actually going to win. We anticipate that's that's who come next. Maybe. Well, and that's that's a, I think that that's where people draw. And this is where I'm looking at um, people looking at the the story of Ragnarok through a historical perspective too, where they are drawing that and being like, oh well, Ragnarok then is a symbol of Norse paganism dying, and then Christianity coming into play, and this new beginning, and this new. Uh, Adam and Eve being the first two or you know what I mean like having that whole story like come from this ending of the the pagan traditions yeah it's it's almost I think it's more beautiful to think of Christianity and Norse paganism as part of the same family overall of of storytelling if you like uh, but also rivals, brothers, if you want. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I'm attracted to that poetic imagery for, an, for a reason. But like two brothers who are fighting uh, and, and arguing with each other, but they filter and affect each other. They, they sort of rub off on one another in little ways. Um, and it's nice to see that happen. I often romanticize talking about uh, York in, in the Viking Age and um, at a certain period of time when uh, coins with um, Viking symbology and Christian symbology. So you can see there's a sword, right? You can, um, and you can position it so there's a cross, but you can also put it that way. So you can see Thor's hammer or you can turn it upside down. You can see that kind of to an extent as well. And like you, you see this mix of symbology between Christians and pagans because both of them were hanging around each other. They were talking to each other. They were working together. It was, it was regular stuff at that point, and they just had to put up with each other. They got used to it, and it affected the culture. Um, now, it's swinging back. Modern paganism is overtaking a lot of stuff, and in England specifically, sorry, the UK rather, more specifically, I think paganism has risen by 34%, and shamanism is at like 40%. Um, people underestimate, I think, Ragnarok's... Um, utility in in a meta as a metaphor you can take it literally if you want you can use it to paint history the Aesir Vanir war is involved and related to this concept and it's like one could argue there was a period of time when the sacred feminine transitioned into becoming the sacred masculine this distinction of matriarchal nature-based religions and tree worship shifting into higher quote-unquote gods and concepts of right. war and sky and storm you know mm -hmm. which of course has no relation to uh, the Canaanite god being a storm god and called Yahweh. No relation at all. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, yeah, I think no, I so, see what you're getting at here. <laughs> it all, it's all kind of rubbing off on each other in different ways at different times. It's, it's like, how, where do the smudges begin and where do the smudges end? I take it all as one story. I'm an omnist. It's, it's all the same stuff. Like there is, there is a greater human story for certain, but these versions of the stories tell us about people. They don't have to be argued, I think, as like, even if you take it as a historical thing, it's like, well, we just have different perspectives on history then, I guess. That's fine. And, and we don't need to, to fight about it so literally as much as it's fun to argue and discuss and talk about the different yes. canon ideas, the, the, the similarities, the differences. Why are we different? That's a more interesting question than you are different and I'm going to argue about it with you. It's, uh, there's a lot to learn about um, growth, I think, from Ragnarok as a metaphor. I think so too. I absolutely think so too. And I agree with you. I agree that people are, uh, people get a little too caught up in being right rather than uh, exploring what could be, right? They, they, they get their understanding, they get this lens that they look through and then it kind of stays there and it kind of, it, it grows 
<laughs> it calcifies and it grows like uh, almost unhealthy sometimes where I wish that they would kind of like bust through that, bust through that stagnation and explore a little bit deeper and ask why and ask how and ask, uh, kind of, kind of try to apply it to different things. Try to apply the symbology because I, I, it is a tragedy to me when people are reading the lore and only seeing surface level and they're not seeing the symbology. They're not seeing the metaphor. Like that, it tells me that they're missing the art. They're missing the poetry piece, right? And that is what it is. And it's it's genius too. It's genius. I think you know? it's feeling it's feeling sorrow that someone doesn't get the experience you do out of reading it, which makes you feel good. So it's like I feel bad that you don't get to feel that. It's not that I want you to to believe this as I believe it and see it as I see it. It's that I know that because you don't see it the same way, you're not going to feel the same way as me. And that's a shame because I think this is quite beautiful as a piece of art as well. That's exactly what it is. Um, Thank you. And I'm like, I hope I don't, I hope I'm not coming across as like, you're not doing it that way. I feel bad for you. Mm. You you know what I mean? Like that's never no, I don't, I don't think that's what you're doing because there's I would merit argue. in the way that they think too because the way that they think is a catalyst yeah. to to opening doors for me because I like to question my beliefs I like to question why I believe the things that I believe and and yeah. and what where that came from and them having their their own perspective lends to me exploring mine too you know and I, I love that for me but I yeah I hope that it didn't come across as me like no, I don't think it did I think it did I think we can all I think we can agree both of us that it's more interesting having different types of people with different perspectives in the first place. Yes. So these people offer me an opportunity. These people offer me the opportunity to be a better person by listening to them and hearing them out and saying, well, why do you think of it literally? Because I I don't think of it that way. And I'd like to know how you think about that. I have met people who are very much the literalist POV. How so though? Like, how do you literalize the creation of the universe? Um, in, you know, with Ganungagap and the, and, uh, Muspelheim and, um, Niflheim. How do right. you conceptualize that as anything other than like a metaphor for, well, basically the Big Bang is kind of what I take it as an yeah, explosive release of something caused the beginning of the universe and then moves on. You can conceptualize. I actually it as drew that. the. I actually drew the parallels in a previous episode. It was very fun to explore. Um, but Probably where I've got that from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, um, no, it's super cool. But like I, because I. I see, I, I definitely see the symbology, the metaphor, the allegory, and all of the stories, right? But I do have a sense of uh, literalism, I suppose you could call it, because I also see them as beings, like very much so. Um, okay. So I'm kind of a blend of both. I'm not a, I'm not a lore literalist uh, by any means, like, but I definitely see them as beings, wh- whether that's an embodiment of a force or a high supernatural being. It's hard to, for me to conceptualize, really. Um, but I that's I think that that's what lends to my ability to speak with both camps and have the conversations with both camps because I see both of it. Like I, I mm. see both sides um, where these are like some, some people will actually see Odin as this this deity sitting in the high seat, Leedskelf up in the up in Asgard and like looking down upon the world. And, and you know what I mean? And nothing is nothing is metaphor. Nothing yeah. is symbology. These are stories that they believe the gods came to earth and told us. And then there's, you know, people who see it entirely as just, uh, you know, metaphorical symbols for the powers that be, the natural forces, the concepts, right? And so I, I kind of get the blend of both because, uh, and it's kind of like I told you, like I've always felt the energy of different things. Um, and so that's entirely just my own, uh, my own understanding of how the world works and how, how energy works and how um, things are their own beings that, that my animist perspective comes in. 
but yeah, it's a it's interesting. It's very interesting. This is this is a struggle for me especially because so like I said earlier, I, I believe I have something called cognitive faith, which is not really a term that I've seen thrown around too much. Just to recap, I, I don't literally believe in these entities, right? But at what point does a metaphor become real? If you believe in Odin as a literal entity, then you sort of have to justify his characteristics as well. It's like, so he literally did all the things he did and you're following him? It's fine if you believe like, oh, you know, that he's more nuanced than that. Like every, every individual's got a story and stuff. And I'm like, there are some things I would find unforgivable. There are some things I would find unforgivable that Odin has done perhaps only exactly. in the context of, of a literal entity. But if it's a metaphor, it's like, that's more forgivable. If it's a metaphor that holds true in some way, like it's not real, but it is real. It's living in front of, the mountain is real. Loki is real. He's right there in front of you. That's what he is in part. And there's, I don't know, for me, that's more beautiful and more interesting. Not to, again, not to diminish the literal perspective. It's just, I need the explanation from someone who believes it of like, well, what, how do you believe that though? How does that work? Because what are the rules with that? That's interesting, but I can't, <laughs> I can't see that, you know? Right. Let me ask you something. Because now I'm curious. Now I'm curious. Because like I said, I'm a blend of both. I've got a blend of both. When you are... Okay, let me ask you this. Do you venerate the gods? Like, do you make offerings? Do you do sacrifice? Do you venerate? And if you do... Well, I'll let you answer the first part of that question. So do I venerate the gods? To an extent, yeah. Uh, so I, I will sit at my piano and my altar is on top of my piano. And I will, when I'm alone at least, um, will play music or will sing or will do you know, poetry readings or something at that piano. Um, using Odin as the focus, sort of like reading poetry to Odin, if that's who I'm trying to talk to at the time, if that makes sense. And for me, the meta context is it's an exercise, it's meditation, it's I, I need to think about a concept and I need, I need advice. Who is going to give me the best advice? And it's almost like, again, this sounds quite hacky, it's very haphazard sort of way of phrasing this as a metaphor but like it's like you have an ai in your head and you're constructing the ai that is most appropriate to to what your needs are in that moment so if i need advice about women i'm going to talk to odin because he's dealt with a lot of women if i need advice about sport i'm going to talk to thor if i need advice about who i am in the world i might talk to loki to get some perspective about you know where that's coming from not that they're talking back but i'm using them as a device to talk to so that I can feel better about something or I can contextualize something or I can enable another way of thinking through an imagined partner almost. But to say they're not real at the same time feels inaccurate because they are real. I feel this experience. This is literally something that happens to me and overtakes me. There is a emotional religious experience that occurs, but I don't logically believe that they are real things. They're not living entities. They're ideas. Um, it's not, physical it's abstract so you can't really approximate what it's what's behave what, what people are going to do in the future with it right it's not a um it's not a consistent domain um but when i when i'm sitting there at my piano and when i'm playing my songs and reading my poems and stuff i do feel odin i feel that that presence of a character who is observing from afar who is elderly who has lived their life already and is very wise they've made lots of mistakes and they're not a perfect person but they appreciate the knowledge you are looking towards. They appreciate the, you know, the thirst for things, the love of life itself. Um, and almost this, this resilience that Odin embodies where he is like Loki. They both have a pretty cursed fate, but at the same time, they're different in how they approach that fate. And right. Odin has this, I'm going to probably fail, but I'm going to try anyway and just have fun with it as best I can. 
I don't know. That's, that's the way I think about that particular that particular god, but I don't invoke them as actual entities, you know. Okay. But equally, I mean, I, I would say the same thing about Jesus. I'd say the same thing about many other characters from many other mythologies. I, I, you could call me eclectic. I'd say Norse pagan, but I'm open to other gods existing because it's the same logic as mine. So. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I I appreciate you getting into that with me. I know that that can be that can be a personal question. So I appreciate you being able to. Think, well, and you're just so you're fucking you're so articulate. I really just enjoy, I enjoy picking your brain. I like the way your brain works and I like the way that you articulate your thoughts. It's fascinating no, it's like, to me. It sounds personal, but like it's really just an observation of a problem where I can't really integrate with a lot of Norse pagan communities because I'm individually different from a lot of these communities. And yeah. my perspective is, it's not unique. It's not alone, but like, no. it's not typical. And it's, it's difficult to see how that works. So I try, I try not to explain it most of the time. I try just not to talk about it because it's not, it's not really relevant to how I interact with other people. It's not like my, my beliefs aren't important to you, really. That's a personal thing. But our love of mythology, our love of this story, our love of these characters and our love of the culture that they grew out of, that is that is shared. That is, yeah. That's all we need, really, I think. You know? Yeah, I think so, too. And that's why I love these conversations. I, I personally like to, to explore how people um, connect with these beings and connect with the energies and connect with the even just the idea or the archetype, kind of like you said. Um, and that's why I was like, wondering if there was some veneration process and i i love how you explained that because there would be people that argue that you know you cannot be um someone who sees everything as metaphorical and symbol symbolic and still be a heathen and i'm like i i, I disagree and i feel like you just highlighted exactly why oh, you know and that's just i mean that's just one person's way of doing it and nobody's gonna be the same but i appreciate it I think it's important to remember that people back in back in these ages where these religions were more, I don't want to say authentic, but you know they're more natural selves. You know, their first iteration. Yeah, they're more alive at that point. Um, people who believed in those things weren't necessarily uh, like like Christians today in America, perhaps, where like their religion is a very big focus of their life. It's like you don't have enough time for that. You don't have enough time for that. You are busy surviving. So they probably weren't introspecting to a really extensive degree. They're probably just telling stories that appealed to them. And through that process, those stories tell you about them. Yes. Um, it's kind of unavoidable. If I ask you to write about yourself, you'll probably write a bunch of stuff that tells me about you. Even if it's not really what you think is related, you'll, you'll pour yourself into the pages without meaning to. And it's unavoidable. Right. You bleed into the religion. You have to, right. Um, you have to. I'm going to have to go, I think. Um, yeah, that's okay. There... Thank you so much. No, I appreciate you coming on here and talking with me about this, about the fucking, you know, the modern interpretations of it, the how it is embedded in the human psyche cross-culturally, if we're looking at the, the themes of it. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think that there's never going to be an end to the questions or the conversations no. around it. And I love that yeah. for us, actually. Fun of it, isn't it? It yeah. doesn't stop. It's, it's cyclical. It keeps going. You, you answer one question, you get seven more. <laughs> exactly. That's the beauty of it. Um, thank you so much for joining me on this. No I really appreciate you. No, likewise, likewise. Thank you very much. Have a nice night, Kira. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to the Hearth of Weird podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on TikTok at Hearth of Weird Podcast to stay up to date on all things heathenry. Every small interaction you have with us helps us grow, and we appreciate it so much. You can also email us directly with all of your heathenry questions at hearthpodcastteam at gmail.com. Be well, do heathen shit, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>